0: Peace in a Pod. My name is Indigo Trichauger, and I'm a communicator at the Peace Research Institute of Oslo. My job here is to help researchers convey their work. Usually, that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. In 2020, 1.6 billion children were living in a conflict-ridden country. Approximately 452 million children, more than one in six, were living less than 50 kilometers from where the actual fighting took place. The number of children living in conflict zones with risks of sexual violence against children has increased since 1990, and the risk of child-soldier recruitment has also steadily increased over the last 30 years. Those numbers came out of the Children in Conflict Project, a collaboration between PRIO and Save the Children. Although researchers, practitioners, and policymakers often work on the same global agendas related to peace and conflict and have different strengths that can complement each other, close collaboration is rarer than one might think. The Children in Conflict Project provides one great example of such collaboration. While armed conflicts affect people of all ages, children are particularly susceptible to the effects of violent conflict. However, systematic knowledge on how children are directly and indirectly affected by armed conflict is still lacking. The Children in Conflict Project estimates the number of children who are exposed to armed conflict at the local level. It also estimates the number of children who are at risk for specific conflict tactics, such as sexual violence against children, as well as the recruitment of minors for armed conflict. In this episode, Gudrun Usby, Rangel Noros, and Rose van der Heer talk about their research on children at risk of armed conflict, wartime sexual violence, and child-soldier recruitment. Gudrun Usby is a research professor and research director of the Department Conditions of Violence and Peace at PRIO. She's also deputy editor of the Journal of Peace Research. Her research interests include armed conflict and maternal health, sexual and gender-based violence, and education in conflict. Gudrun leads the Children in Conflict Project. Ranglin Noros is a senior researcher at PRIO and assistant professor of political science at the University of Michigan. Her research interests are especially focused on sexual and gender-based violence in armed conflict. Rose van der Haar is an assistant professor of international relations at the Institute of Political Science at Leiden University. Her current research interest focus includes the empirical examination of the causes and consequences of child soldiering and recruitment strategies of rebel groups. Welcome to the podcast. I'm very glad that three of you could join me today, especially you Rose, who has joined us at Prio just for a few days. So thanks for taking the time to actually sit down with me for such a big chunk of your visit here.
1: Thanks for having me here.
0: It's very, very exciting that you're joining us since you are an expert on some of the things we're going to be talking about. Um, but first, Gudrun, uh, I'd like you to just give us a little bit of background on this collaboration that we're discussing today. Um, how did this come about?
2: Okay, thanks for inviting us, go, first of all. So uh, this all started back in 2017, where we were approached by Save the Children, who wanted Prio to help out with generating data on uh, grave violations against children in conflict for their forthcoming, then-forthcoming flagship report uh, on uh, the war on children, as they called it. So we started having discussions back and forth with them, saying that uh, coming up with numbers on children killed in conflict is a huge task and not something that we could... Uh, create for them (laughs) over the course of a a few months. Um, So what we ended up doing was agreeing that whereas we couldn't say nuanced, detailed things about the exact number of children who were directly affected by conflict, what we could do was to use the conflict data that we have already and the information on population density around the world to say something about the number of children who are indirectly affected by conflict. That is the number of children who live close to ongoing conflict episodes. So that's what we ended up doing for them.
0: Yeah, and which is obviously a, a very significant thing to know as well. I mean, um, this the results have been pretty shocking, or I think that they're quite shocking. Um, before we talk about the results, though, I just wanted to ask you as well, what have been some of the, the benefits, but maybe also uh, challenges with this kind of collaboration? Because you said... There was maybe an expectation this could be done pretty quickly. In fact, it's been a massive project and it's been very successful. And now there've been several iterations and we're going to talk about the different um, changes and additions that you've had over the last couple of years. But um, is that unusual that organizations that are quite different, I think, would work together like this?
2: Uh, I think it's less usual than it should be. I think uh, researchers and uh, practitioners and policymakers should ideally work much more together. And we have definitely learned a lot from each other, both sides. Uh, It's been really rewarding, but also frustrating at times. (laughs) We come from very different uh, points of departure. So what was most challenging to begin with, I think, is that... uh, uh, NGO people are very impatient. They <laughs> want figures, they want updated figures, they want numbers that we simply can't come up with in short notice um, but also they are really good at communicating so things that we researchers tend to say in over convoluted ways they can actually help us communicate much more efficiently and that can be scary for us because as a researcher I'm always very concerned and afraid that we will lose out on all the nuances and it won't be correct if we communicate things too simply. But I think we have a lot to learn. Also, Save the Children um, has a really professional way of dealing with the media. So when the report was released, it immediately (laughs) was out there uh, all over the place in all kinds of newspapers and TV stations and radio. So that was also a learning process for us, I think, how we can improve our uh, dissemination.
0: Mm. So... Let's talk quickly about some of the numbers just to give people an idea of, like I said, um, how actually quite shocking this is. Uh, the the report that you did is children in, affected by armed conflict, and this is from 1990 to 2020, and I guess this has then been an update because the first uh, report came in 2018. Uh, Is that correct? Seeing the children. So the
2: first report came in 2018, and then we have done annual updates for them. So the latest report now is uh, covers the year 2020. That's correct.
0: Hmm. So in 2020, uh, there were 1.6 billion children living in a conflict-affected country, and you write that that's 68 percent. In 2020, Asia was the world region with the highest total number of children living in conflict zones whereas the Middle East continued to have the highest share of children living in conflict zones relative to the total child population. Um, those are just some of the lowlights, I guess one wouldn't say highlights, um, of, of the report. Um, Rosa and also, Ranglin, you can comment as well if you want, what does this mean for, for children living in these regions? What does that actually entail? I mean, the numbers obviously can tell a story, but what does it actually mean for kids living in these regions in their day-to-day life?
1: Well... It varies a bit. eh? So now we are uh, generalizing a tiny bit. Um, But uh, living in a conflict zone means that you are insecure. You see perhaps things that you do not want to see as children. Uh, You maybe lose access to school. Um, You might need to move to flee sometimes. Um, you see horrible things. Um, and it has devastating consequences for children in general. Um, devastating consequences, not only on, uh, the, the basic things like education, but it might also influence, uh, has some psychological influences that can be long lasting. Um, and, and we need to avoid this at all costs.
0: Uh, what kind of trends have emerged in these in these updates, as you said, good over the years? maybe you've seen a trend over the last few years, but also going back to to the first year that you're looking at data from, what can we see, I guess in regions and also maybe in terms of the numbers, increases and decreases?
2: So, first of all, Indigo, I just wanted to come up with another nuance, since I'm a researcher. Uh, Mm -hmm. You mentioned that 68% of the children uh, live in conflict countries. But what is the most important thing uh, we bring out there is to count the number of children who have conflict in their very proximate vicinity. Mm -hmm. And that's actually as much as 452 million, or one out of every six children in the world who live uh, less than 50 kilometers away from a violent conflict event. So I just wanted to make that point first. No No matter how we look at this, there has been an increasing trend over the years since the end of the Cold War. Um, in the latter years, we see uh, the trends of conflict events and affected children going in opposite directions, with a higher number of children being affected by a lower number of conflict events, so to speak. But that is uh, due to the fact that conflict is increasingly happen happening in more urban areas where more people live.
0: Mm, okay, interesting. I think here I actually already want to bring in um, the update from this year, which was about Children at risk of wartime sexual violence um and this report, which again was collaboration with save the children and was released um, in twenty twenty one young uh, and you were a, a big part of this, and this has been well this is something you're an expert on this is part of your research um, what what were the results or what were the most interesting findings from from this update
3: we've been collecting data on sexual violence in war for for a while, and we had kind of children in there as one of the things we looked for when we tried to do sort of systematic mapping of which armed groups are committing acts of sexual violence and what are the trends in that. But um, we hadn't really looked at much in, in depth about uh, children uh, overall in that data collection. So it was interesting to see how common it is that children are directly affected by the sexual violence that's happening in conflicts around the world. Now, um, sexual violence varies a great deal. Um, I think there is a common misunderstanding maybe that sexual violence is happening in all conflicts and by all com- conflict actors, and that is not the case. There's, there's a great deal of variation. There are some groups that commit sexual violence at high prevalence, and there is a really important part of their strategy in war there are other groups that commit a lot a lot of sexual violence but where it's not necessarily strategic but it still can happen at a massive scale and then there are also a lot of groups and armed organizations that really restrain this behavior and don't commit uh sexual violence or at least in a very limited um uh, to a very limited degree do they do we have reports of them committing sexual violence so that's kind of important to put put out there um that there is a great deal of variation here, but we didn't have a very good sense of the variation when it came to who is being targeted, or that the data wasn't very systematic on where where does this type of conflict behavior affect children. So when um, when save the children were interested in in this, we we felt like we didn't have much um, detail to give them. So we tried to sort of do the same uh, type of estimation for for sexual violence against uh, children um, by looking at um, areas of countries uh, where at least one of the conflict actors have been reported to commit sexual violence against children and to see how many children live in those areas where where these actors are operating. Um, So that doesn't, of course, mean that all the children in these areas are directly affected, but we know that this is an area where, where these types of uh, crimes are being committed against children um, and it's, it turns out that of the conflicts where one of the actors at least one of the actors is committing uh, we, we know reports of ha- have been committing sexual violence um, in general in the conflict in, a, in the large majority of these conflicts children are also part of the victim population so I think it's about sixty eight percent of the conflicts with sexual violence also have sexual violence committed against children so that's a really big share of the conflict where sexual violence is a problem where it also directly affects children so I think that it might not be very surprising but it's shocking
0: Mm. Uh, distinguishing between children and adults in sexual violence and conflict has there been much work done on this previously or um, what is kind of this state of research in that area
3: I don't think it's been specifically focused on very much. Uh, but I do think that it's kind of in there when a lot of scholars talk about sexual violence. We very often have examples that uh, involve young girls mm. in particular being victimized. But that's important to say that sexual violence does not only affect women and girls. It also very much affects uh, men and boys. Um, And that's maybe even more underreported than sexual violence against um, women and girls. Um, But so it's sort of implicit in a lot of the the anecdotal evidence or the case studies that have been done that um, teenage girls, um, in particular, are uh, sort of overrepresented in the statistics on 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 victims. saying statistics here makes me also cringe a little bit because we should be very careful as, as scholars and also when we we're talking about data about sexual violence to uh, to not overstate how good the data is so how how certain we are about any estimation of victim counts are inherently uh, problematic in my opinion it might be possible in certain locations in very to to have a clear sense of of more or less how many victims or survivors of sexual violence we, we're talking about. But very often the data is has a lot of um, biases or, or un- serious uh, concerns about underreporting.
0: Hmm. As you were talking, before you were talking about data, but just before that, I saw Rose <laughs> nodding quite vigorously. Was there anything that you wanted to, to add?
1: Well, I think the data on sexual violence, of course, um, I mean, it's difficult to get data on sexual violence. And it's similar with my topic. It's difficult to get data on child soldier recruitment. Um, I mean, uh, child soldiers are often called uh, invisible children simply because they disappear and, uh, very quickly. They appear also very quickly. So gathering data on um, or and systematic data on on child soldier recruitment as is, as with sexual violence is extremely difficult.
0: So how do you go about it, then, in in both cases, I guess?
3: Well, um, first, I think the first thing we, we did when starting to collect systematic data on sexual violence was basically just to sort of think very carefully about what are the possible sources of misinformation or what's, what are the challenges we are facing when we're trying to, to collect systematic data. And by systematic data, I mean something that's comparable across different actors, different conflicts at different points in time. So we wanted to have a sort of a global overview of the situation for sexual violence in war. Uh, So for certain type, for certain conflicts, certain conflict actors, we might have very rich data, but we don't, but for most cases, we have much more patchy data. And we wanted to see what can we do that's relatively comparable across time and space. So, we actually ended up using after a lot of thinking about it and a lot of different trying out different uh, looking at different types of sources, etc, we ended up using three main sources for the data so we use the u s State Department have human rights reports that come out annually that are very often used by scholars of human rights and repression and conflict uh, we also use uh, reports by Amnesty international um, and now in more uh, recent years we 're also using human rights watch reports, so looking systematically is what what um, is reported in those sources. Of course, they draw on a lot of different other sources for their reports um, and for certain conflicts, we could have maybe used additional sources uh, and so on but But for this sort of global overview, these three main sources um, they uh, they give a, a pretty um, reliable comparison uh, globally. So, so we're using we're using those. Mm. Uh, we are also n- not trying uh, or not putting a number on the, n- mm. the number of perpetrators of sexual violence, or number of survivors or victims, um, uh, and instead, sort of trying to estimate if this is happening. In is it like an isolated phenomenon? Is it? Common or is it sort of very, very uh, high prevalence? So having this type of scale from no reports up to this is massive, widespread. Mm. Um, It it gives um, it's not as detailed as if you could have a victims count, but it is more uh, something we can say with more confidence that we believe that this scaling uh, is a reflection of 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 the situation on the ground.
0: Uh, what about the data collection for, for children affected by Arab conflict?
1: Well, I think we use similar um, similar data sources. Uh, we also use uh, US State Department um, reports, Human Rights Watch, MNC International, but we also use reports of local NGOs and uh, more international NGOs and IGOs, such as Save the Children, but also War Child or uh, other NGOs and IGOs. We also rely heavily, especially in later years, on um, the UN. Uh, so the UN publishes each year a report on uh, the situation of the children in armed conflict in uh, m- across many different countries. They have also different individual reports about a particular country in depth. Um, so we basically also rely on those things. But I think we use similar sources. If I can just jump in on that, uh,
2: the UN data is a re- really interesting source. They have reports on the what they call the six grave violations against children. So that is killing and maiming of children, sexual violence against children, abduction, recruitment of child soldiers, attacks on schools, and denial of uh, access to humanitarian assistance. Um, but what is challenging with these data is that they vary a lot in terms of nuance. So exactly what Rangler was talking about, I think it's super important to find the right balance between crudeness <laughs> or something we can say, uh, something which is comparable across contexts. Um, and that's what we try to do also when we think about exposure to conflict because conflict events can also vary a lot. Uh, in terms of the number of uh, people killed and so on. But we are simply counting <laughs> the children living close to violent conflict events. We can, of course, distinguish between the more intense uh, areas and the less intense, but we're not putting specific numbers. And yeah, so it's it's uh, all about trying to find <laughs> the right balance when we talk about these things. Mm.
0: Mm. Before we move on to child soldier recruitment, which is the the next kind of update tie-in uh, in which you, you all um, wrote about together, I wanted to ask you, Gudrun, and you can also comment and if you have an opinion about this, but have you seen any policy changes since this collaboration with SAVE? Um, because as you said, it started in 2018. There's been updates every year. I mean, I realize that things do move slowly sometimes um, but but have you seen either commitments intentions or kind of policy results from from the reports
2: well uh actual policy results and change i think takes a lot of time but our first goal is to contribute to agenda setting and to that end i think uh, this collaboration has uh, had some fruitful effects So, um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Save the Children has a very good media strategy. They also have a very good advocacy strategy, so they have contacts directly into the UN. And this uh, latest report, um, uh, Weapon of War uh, on Sexual Violence Against Children, uh, was debated at the UN level. And that is really inspiring for us as researchers to know that the figures we are... Uh, working on, sitting and writing our reports, actually reach the people who can influence the actual policy. But I don't know if you want to jump in, Rose and and then comment on the actual situation on the
1: ground? I think, as you said, it goes very slowly, but what I do see over years is that especially uh, larger NGOs are very interested in what we are doing. So uh, we we get more and more requests uh, for help and for advice, etc. So at least we have a lot of connections with with NGO and IGO world, which initially there was no connection at all. So there there seems to be uh, some sort of synergy that we are working together um, in these kind of topics, which I think is a very positive uh, thing.
2: Yeah, and on a related note, now this uh, this past Friday, there was uh, the adoption of the new uh, United Nations Security Council resolution on the protection of uh, education for children in conflict settings, which is also... At least a symbolic step in the right direction,
3: I think that's a very important s- step to just just the fact that the security council is debating issues to do with children and war. It means that it has gotten uh, recognition that's something that we should care about that that's something that's a security problem um and you know so it kind of uh, i that's not that's not necessarily changed in the situation on the ground, but it's a step in that direction at least that a lot of more resources will prob- probably go to trying to do something about these issues and more uh, organizations working on the ground will will sort of it will ease their their work and make their work um, easier to get on their agenda and easier to, to get funding for their programming and and so on so i think it will have uh, have benefits and i think the same thing about the the sort of sexual violence agenda in general as well where this is now just the amount of research, the amount of NGOs, the amount of uh, people investing in, in trying to do something about this problem has just grown tremendously over the last uh, few years. So we can still see that the problems the problems are nowhere near solved. Right? The problem of sexual violence and war, the problem of recruiting children, the problems of... Um, sexual violence against children—all these things are still ongoing problems. But at least there is now some serious work being done on it, and it's being recognized as something that we should at least care about. Which wasn't the case before; it was really a non-issue for for peace researchers and for for policymakers for the Security Council. It's a very different world uh, in terms of how much recognition these issues are are getting. So, I think it it can make a difference. Um, but for, for us as scholars, especially when we're trying to sort of document systematically, you know, across time and space, we also very often run into the problem that when something comes on the agenda, we it can look like things are getting worse because hmm. people are picking up on this much more. So NGOs on the ground will report on cases hmm. of violence against children. They will report on cases of sexual violence. Survivors of sexual violence might be encouraged to report more and be, be, feel more empowered to do so. So you're getting more information about these things happening. Hmm. And so if you just take the data at face value without thinking about those reporting uh, changes, like the changing in reporting over time, you risk making some wrongful assumptions that things are getting much worse rather than better. And this is a, a very difficult sort of methodological problem to get around, but it's something we should keep in mind. When we start to focus on something, we might get information, um, more information. It might look like things are actually getting worse when they are in fact getting better. So it's something we should, we should sort of keep in mind. Mm. Um, and we do think a lot about
0: This is a perfect segue into our next section, which is on child soldier recruitment. Uh, and this is a report that was co-authored by you, Rose von der Herr, Gudrun, and Siri Olsrudstad, and then also Andrew Arrowsmith, who's, who's also here at Prio. Um, in the report, you say that there are 337 million or one in eight children at risk of recruitment in 2020 now. Benang, thanks for pointing out the data can be a little bit misleading. And now I'm curious to hear uh, what you all have to say about this, um, maybe putting it in more context. But this 337 million in 2020 is in stark contrast to 99 million in 1990. So this looks like an increase. Um, if it is, what is, what could be contributing to this increase? Uh, or is there a bit more context around this data that we should talk about?
1: Well, I think it is already pointed out that comparing uh, like two decades, it's a, it's a bit, I mean, it goes far, uh, because the data is not so fantastic. So in 1990, we, we might mm-hmm. picked up certain things and we might miss other things. And especially the last part is a bit problematic. So I would never compare 1990 with 2020, uh, simply because of these problems. But what we do see, if we compare, uh, 2019 and 2020, for instance, uh, we do see an increase. And I think this is, uh, this we can trust more than, uh, comparing over decades, basically. Um, what causes this increase? Well, I think f- p- part of it, of course, is that we see also more uh, conflict and we see more uh, non-state groups um, getting active and we see more conflict events. Um, that means also more children living in area where these groups are, 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 are um, active. And as Gurun also said uh, previously, we see also more action Closer to urban area, which basically increases already, like, with urban area with a lot of population and with a lot of children. So that increases the risk, basically, that these children are getting, um, basically, exposed to conflict.
0: Hmm. Gudrun, did you want to add anything?
2: No, well, uh, I totally agree on the reporting issue. Uh, There is... um, there are also uncertainties in terms of how we combine different data sources. So when we assume that children are at risk of sexual violence and child soldier recruitment in their home area, we, uh, in all honesty, we don't really know where this recruitment happened and where these uh, actions of sexual violence happened. We only know that there are active conflict actors in these areas who have been reported to either recruit children or conduct sexual violence against children. So this is a a big assumption, but again, it's the best we have. And I think that's something uh, generalist scholars are struggling with all the time, that we have to use the best available data we have. So uh,
0: you also write that in uh, 2020, there were 22 governments and 110 non-state conflict actors in active conflicts around the world that were reported to recruit child soldiers. Um, Rose, since this is your area of expertise, did this did this surprise you, or was this pretty much what you... Would
1: no, this didn't surprise me. But um, what is worth mentioning is that in comparison to other previous reports uh, concerning child soldier recruitment, this year we um, collected information on the recruitment of children by state governments or by um, what do we call paramilitary organizations related to the state. And that is something uh, something entirely new, um, and we, we collected it uh, for save the children. And yes, that there are so many state governments involved um, and so many uh, non-state actors involved in that didn't surprise me. Uh, not at all, actually, to be honest.
0: Was there anything that did surprise you?
1: <laughs> very good question. To be very honest, not really. Nothing did faze you <laughs> That sounds also as if i have seen everything. No, but... Um, uh, I mean that there, that I always had uh, I mean we worked so long on this topic and so uh, so that we, we know that we see an upward trend we know that um, and we also basically know the perpetrators already a bit so that, that we see this going up, this was not a surprise basically
0: I When I was reading these different reports and policy brief I was seeing some overlap or maybe similar trends so for example that uh, children at risk of child soldier recruitment in Asia, the highest number was found. And then in the middle East, again, it was the highest share. So similar to children living in conflict. And then also uh, when it comes to sexual violence, that the five countries with the highest shares were Yemen, Somalia, Iraq, Syria, and Colombia. So I'm wondering if the three of you could reflect a little bit on how these three topics um, overlap, but maybe also diverge where their countries that where the trends were a little bit surprising or unusual to you.
3: I just wanted to add that we also actually know, this is not in these reports, but this from previous research, that groups that recruit children also have a higher prevalence of using sexual violence as part of their violence repertoire. So I found this for pro-government militias, so these state-affiliated actors. Uh, we see very quite systematically that those organi- those uh, programmatic militias that have recruited children, they're also overrepresented in this um, prevalence of sexual violence. Not against children specifically. We hadn't collected that data at that time when that research was done. But we know that these groups are generally using sexual violence more, or more likely to use sexual violence than groups that don't recruit children. So Mm. these things might be be conducted in that that way as well. Now, the reason we didn't, um, when we did that research, we are kind of uh, explaining this by, or the way we set up that study was that we used the recruitment of children as a proxy for uh, forced recruitment. So Mm. Because there are studies that show that groups that recruit children also have a tendency to use forced recruitment as part of the recruitment strategy. It doesn't have to be all the recruiting that they do is forced recruitment, of course, but there's a, there's a connection there between those two phenomena that tend to go together. So for lack of better, better measure of forced recruitment, we use this proxy of that these organizations recruit children. And the reason why this is important is that there's a connection between forced recruitment and committing sexual violence, so groups that recruit um the argument here is Dara Cohen at Harvard has been doing a lot of work on this, and so this is uh, she's you know the main person who's kind of been championing this this argument that groups that recruit by force they need to create cohesion within the group. Um, more so than those that don't recruit by force. And so they're using sexual violence as one way of socializing soldiers together. So you can think of it a little bit similar to what happening in like fraternities and so on, where, where violence and these sort of initiations are used to bring people together. And so it's, it's a different way of thinking about why sexual violence happens more. So among certain types of organizations compared to others, but, this is kind of there's a connection there between the the method of recruitment and the and and using sexual violence. So these things are connected in in, in complex ways um, like that.
0: Does that go for both state and non-state actors? I'm just wondering yes. if state actors would also have the bond of, for example, allegiance to the country or something else. That you you, you would, it. you
3: might think so, and I think that's also uh, we find this for these state connected actors. Uh, in the in this specific study that I'm, I'm referring to where we're looking at uh, recruitment of children. But it's found generally, and, and Derek Cohen's work has found this. She looks at uh, use of gang rapes in, in particular in civil wars and looking at both state actors and rebel groups, finding the same thing. And so it's important to know that states uh, do record, recruit by force, uh, as do rebel groups. States do commit sexual violence, as At the same sort of um or are as frequently reported to to commit sexual violence as rebel groups are, another thing that a lot of people don't know um, so there's really not that big of a difference between states and non state groups here. It could be that yes you have some allegiance to your country, but if people are thrown together, recruited by force or um uh, you know, there are examples of you go into the movie theater and outsiders uh, are buses and then just, you know, take the young men onto the buses and, and, and take them off into forced military service. Uh, it's called press ganging. This type of recruitment strategy has been done by states in, in conflicts around the world. So um, we shouldn't think that states are somehow more benign here, that they don't uh, engage in this type of uh, forced recruitment and, and violent behavior. And also recruiting um, uh, children so, or people under the age of eighteen.
1: For us, at least, uh, when we talk about child soldier recruitment, and as Rapnir already said, it, like states are doing this, um, and also it's not only states in the global South that are doing child soldier recruitment. It's also recruitment by Western armies that that recruit um, children under the age of eighteen, sometimes with parental uh, consent, but they do recruit um, um, seventeen and sixteen year old think about the U.S. or mm. the Netherlands um, so we, yeah, mm. it's not something entirely yeah, yeah.
2: and in a good share of the conflict events where we see recruitment this happens both from the state and from rebel groups so some children are exposed to both these mm. types at the same time
0: I am going to challenge you a little bit now because we already kind of talked about if you'd seen any policy changes or, or agenda setting and these types of things I'm wondering if you had policy recommendations uh it doesn't have to be <laughs> it doesn't have to be a whole kind of you know massive solution to this but um based on your areas of expertise what what are the one or two things that you think really could make a difference um in these cases
1: so i oh uh, yeah i'm sorry no you can go <laughs> no, i
2: think this is always the hardest part um but the main challenge that comes up again and again is the need for better data. But because uh, having people <laughs> act on this problem, we need to inform it first. So this is a start, but we would like to see much more nuanced data mapping all these grey violations against children in the future. Now, that's one thing. Uh, still, we shouldn't not act <laughs> only because we don't have perfect data. So I think... Um, Policy recommendations such as supporting high-quality peacekeeping operations in conflict-affected areas is definitely one thing. Naming and shaming the groups that uh, commit these atrocities is another. Um, And also, uh, in order to ease the situation for vulnerable children, I think increasing aid is definitely one way to go. We do know that aid helps. We have a separate study where we look at Um, the impact of living close to actual aid projects in terms of how this affects infant mortality in Nigeria. And we find a clear uh, effect that aid actually reduces uh, infant mortality. So it saves children's lives. However, we also find that the aid does not necessarily reach the ones who need it the most. That is, it doesn't reach the areas where we see the highest levels of infant mortality to begin with. So that's also an interesting thing
1: to focus on. Hmm. So for me, if we if we talk about policy recommendation, I think we, we need to step back a tiny bit and ask why are children recruited um, and why do, I, do they join? And these are very large questions because if we know the motivations behind the recruitment or we know the motivations why they join, join then we actually can basically push back. And there are, in general, um Concerning childhood recruitment, we think about some sort of supply and demand side. Mm. So there are um, factors that basically motivate children to join, such as, for instance, lack of education, uh, lack of economic prospects, uh, but also insecurity and friends and and. and Adventure and stuff like that there is also um, reasons why rebel groups recruit children over adults. I think about um, increased fighting capacity um, children uh, brings a lot of fighting capacity to uh, to, um, to rebel groups think that children are quickly to indoctrinate um, they don 't run away so quickly. So we need to have a good overview of what motivates children to join, but also what motivates rebel groups to recruit them. And only if we know that, we can actually come up with real-life policy uh, recommendation. And as Gudrun said, it it basically comes up with uh, creating safe spaces for children, um, naming and shaming, if we basically want to punish the perpetrators, et cetera.
0: Hmm.
3: Yeah, well, um, I can mostly just speak to... Sexual violence, of course, and uh, I think that the, um, what I said previously—that realizing that there is variation here—is a really important um, first step to to realizing that we can actually do something about the problem of sexual violence, whether it's committed against adults or against children. Um, when I say that there is variation, the the important part of that is that it's not inevitable. In war, that uh, that sexual violence happens, at least not on a large scale, and it's not. There are very good examples, well documented examples of organizations that make sure that there's discipline and restraint uh, amongst their soldiers. So this this idea that oh, it's war, nothing can be done, it's inevitable, it's just going to happen, or think. Uh, you know, saying like boys will be boys and these types of things as sort of an excuse for why we shouldn't even try to do something about the problem of sexual violence. That's a very dangerous way of thinking. And we, so I always try to sort of emphasize this point that it's not, it varies quite a lot and there are good examples of restraint being possible. And so that means that you can hold, especially um, commanders, more responsible for what, for what troops are doing. Commanders do not always have, uh, the ability to control the behavior of, of rank and file and their soldiers. But they, I think that's a way to start at least to, to do something about the problem is to, to, to sort of increase this commander responsibility. Uh, knowing that it is possible to restrain this behavior for the, for organizations that really set out to do that. Um, so, and I think that uh, now that we've also documented that states are frequent perpetrators of sexual violence uh, against children, and also uh, in, in general, there's maybe more to do. We can do to influence states, and I do think that there's maybe some trends in the data. It's always difficult to to be sure about this, but there's some trends in the data that suggest that states are. Less frequent perpetrators over time, although they are still it's still a problem. Sexual violence by state actors, um, and that uh, in contrast, rebel groups are maybe doing it more than um, what we saw uh, earlier. But it could be that some of the all all this agenda setting and all this pushing uh, at the UN and, and so on has made those states that are able to restrain it uh, willing to do so. So it maybe that's a sort of a, a, a positive story there of. Uh, that we can influence actors to to um, implement restraint. So I think that's um, that's the way to go. Um, but there there are many things that need to, to happen. But that's maybe if, if I had to pick one, uh, holding commanders responsible mm. and and um, not uh, excusing this this behavior is is important.
0: Thanks for picking Prio's Peace in a Pod. This podcast is a production of the Peace Research Institute Oslo, Prio, located in Norway. For more information, visit Prio.org. Editing, recording, and hosting by me, Indigo Trink-Hauger. Additional writing and editing by Fuka Iwasi. Music by Martha Nutt.